Happy Mischief Night or Devil's Night, kids. This is Angus. In this edition of the comic book character of the month, I decided to take a different slant with things. What more is to be said about a classic story that came out in the late 1800s? Bram Stoker's Dracula has been so well documented and reviewed, I have no idea what new or inventive take I would have. So instead, I felt what would be more entertaining would be to delve into a little comics archaeology. Yes, folks, inspired by JJ. And no better person to deliver that background on how this series, Dracula, was developed over three decades than the actual writer himself, Roy Thomas. So let's let Roy provide us with how Dracula with Dick Giordano came to be. We hope you enjoy. From the Inkwells of Noor. Digital screens of today. The kids present the comic book character of the month. I am Dracula. Happy Halloween, kids, and thanks for listening. Welcome to our comic book character of the month for October, Halloween Horror Month, Dracula. And I want to welcome you all back and bring to you an encapsulation of our comic book character of the month selection, Dracula, which was put out in 2010 by Marvel. Marvel has a long and storied history with the classic Dracula character. And this specific graphic novel that was selected was actually first put out by Marvel in a limited four-issue run, chronicling the classic Bram Stoker Dracula story. Our writer for this is none other than Roy Thomas. Roy Thomas has had a prolific writing career in comics, and boy does his artistry shine in this adaptation. This is a compilation of no less than close to three to four decades worth of work. And you may be saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Why did it take so long to be published? Well, portions of this graphic novel started out as black and white and were in Tomb of Dracula and Dracula Lives, both series coming in the 1970s to Marvel. In addition, the art for this was done by none other than comics luminary Dick Giordano. Dick Giordano started illustrating for Charlton Comics and DC, and he then left and founded Continuity Studios with none other than Neil Adams in 1971. Out of that Continuity Studios founding, they would do work for Charlton, Marvel, Big Apple Comics, you name it. Part 
of that was working on these titles for Marvel. Now, the completion of this book as a whole and colorizing of it would happen then in the aughts and finally put together as a graphic novel in 2010. So instead of delving into the classic story of Bram Stoker's Dracula, which I'm sure many of you are quite familiar with, I will say this. This is a faithful adaptation of that story. And frankly, when I was discussing this title with Ray, he mentioned, hey, Angus, do you remember those book series called Illustrated Classics? And I went, yeah, you nailed it, Ray. That's exactly what this Dracula tale is all about. And very similarly with how well Roy Thomas took the works of Conan and brought that to the pages of Marvel, he does the same type of fantastic work and translation of Bram Stoker's Dracula to the comic book pages and really complementing the sequential art of Dick Giordano. I say there, good man. What shoes have you found there? Comics Archaeology. So, from Roy Thomas, I would like to read the following, which is included in the first part of Dracula. It is a letter entitled, Dracula Lives, and this is to the reader. And I think this is important from a contextual standpoint and will give you a feel for what you are in store for when you read Dracula. And needless to say, by my enthusiasm here, I thoroughly enjoyed this graphic novel. Loved it. It was a joy to read. I could not put it down. Dracula Has Risen from the Grave was the title of one of the later Hammer Dracula films starring Christopher Lee. Dracula Lives was the name of a black and white comic magazine published by Marvel during the mid-1970s. Either of those could have served just as perfectly as Stoker's Dracula as the moniker of the series you hold in your hot or cold little hand. For this adaptation of Bram Stoker's 1897 novel was conceived and begun in 1974 and is now coming to fruition almost exactly three decades later. That's a long gestation period even for nearly 200 page comic book graphic novel or whatever else they're calling them these days. A bit of history, since that's what I'm here for. Think back to 1974. Since 1955 and the regrettable anti-comics movement led by Dr. Frederick Wortham, vampires along with werewolves and other types of ghoulies had been verboten in comic books that were approved by the Comics Code Authority. In 1964, publisher James Warren had brought them back by the side door. In his magazines, Creepy and Eerie, which were really just oversized black and white comic books, but mainstream color comics publishers like Marvel, DC, had to steer clear of them. Then in 1971, the assembled comics publishers finally noticed that the world had changed more since 1955 than they, or their comics code, had. And the code was duly liberalized 
realized, so that vampires and their ilk could sink their teeth into comics readers again. The first result of this at Marvel was a quasi-vampire christened Morbius, the living vampire whom Gil Kane and I stuck into Amazing Spider-Man number 101 at editor Stan Lee's behest. A few months later, Stan decided Marvel would launch a color comic starring the most famous vampire of all. Stan came up with a two-sentence verbal concept. I anonymously plotted the story. Gene Kalan drew it, and writer Jerry Conway scripted it. Since the name Dracula by itself couldn't be trademarked, the comic was christened The Tomb of Dracula. Ironically, above the Tomb of Dracula title on the cover was another phrase, which I'm fairly sure was first scribed out by Stan himself. Dracula lives. Tomb of Dracula became a modest hit, especially after Marv Wolfman, Gene Kalan, and Tom Palmer settled in as the creative team. And so, around spring of 1973, Stan felt it was time to take the next step, to launch the King of Vampires in a black and white comic magazine in order to concoct slightly stronger non-comics code-approved stories. By then, Stan had been named Marvel's publisher, and I was serving as editor-in-chief, albeit under his watchful eye. It was Stan again who came up with the format for the new mag, which he named Dracula Lives. Probably not even recalling he'd used that phrase on the cover of the very first issue of Tomb of Dracula. Our leader decreed that each issue, along with the 1950s reprints and text features to cut expenses, would contain several stories of Dracula set in different time periods. Well, why not? After all, Vlad Dracul of Transylvania, the historical personage on whom Stoker had partly based his fictional creation, had lived in the 15th century and thus had nearly 600 years to play around in, being undead and all. The first issue of Dracula Lives, dated simply 1973, but actually for June 1973, featured stories of the vampire taking a 20th century bite out of the Big Apple, somehow getting to America to affect the Salem Witch Trials and romping amid the 19th 19th century Vienna. Looking back on it, the pure side of me cringes at what we did in those early issues. After all, one of the major tenets of Stoker's novel is that the Count hasn't traveled much, living or dead, which is why young Jonathan Harker is summoned to Castle Dracula. But we couldn't have had much of a comic, er, excuse me, magazine, if all Drac had been able to do for six centuries was terrifying the Transylvanian and Wallachian peasants. So, we bent the rules, and Dracula Lives sold reasonably well for a time, with stories written by all and sundry, including yours truly, who scripted that Salem story, and art by the likes of Gene Kalan, Neil Adams, John Buscema, and others of Marvel's Best. Being increasingly busy with Marvel's expansion plans, which had recently led to surpass DC as the largest comic book company, I quickly became less involved in the production of the magazine, turning most of the editorial tasks over to Marv Wolfman. Still, Dracula, the novel, far more than movies with Christopher Lee or even Bela Lugosi, was a passion of mine, and I kept wanting to do more writing for Dracula Lives. I had read Stoker's Tome while in junior high or thereabouts and had fallen in love with it. I can still vividly recall that I finished the novel one day while staying home from school with the flu or some such thing and with a little machine called a vaporizer spewing out hot, supposedly beneficial fumes next to my bed. As I was reading the climax of the novel wherein the fearless vampire hunters overtake the gypsies, transporting Dracula back to his castle and as one of them plunges a dagger into Drac's evil heart, the vaporizer certainly let out a loud gurgle, which indicated it was in need of a new container full 
both water to boil into steam, and I nearly jumped out of my young skin. By 1973, I'd read the novel once or twice more, so while I don't recall exactly how it came about, I decided I'd adapt Dracula into serialized comic form for Dracula Lives. I like to think that Marv didn't much mind losing one of his several stories each issue to a continuing feature, but even if he had, rank hath its privileges, and I was suddenly launched on a dream project. I've no recollection how Dick Giordano came to be the artist of the adaptation, but he was definitely my choice. I don't recall if Dick had ever told me before that he loved the novel, but when I approached him, his enthusiasm matched mine. Besides being a friend of mine since those 1965 days when we had just assumed the mantle of editor of Charlton Comics, and we used to have lunch from time to time, Dick was an artist I'd enjoyed working with on Conan the Barbarian and elsewhere. He had the kind of illustrative approach I thought perfect for the adaptation, and was somehow I could depend upon to do his dead-level best to deliver the material we needed every two months. I went out and bought several copies of a recent Dell paperback edition of Dracula, whose black and white and blue cover sported a handsome profile of a white-mustached, white-haired, fanged count. That way, when writing my synopsis from which Dick would draw the story, I could both quite liberally from the novel and indicate particular pages wherein Dick could go for more inspiration. Since I was editor as well as writer of the adaptation, I was free to make each chapter as long as it needed to be, and 10 to 12 pages seemed a length that Dick could handle and wouldn't interfere with the rest of Dracula Lives. I honestly can't say I recall a lot about the process of adapting Dracula because Dick and I rarely conferred on it. I simply typed out my synopsis for each chapter, sent it to him, and he delivered beautiful rough pencils, which I then scripted. I commandeered as letterer the inestimable Joe Rosen because he could letter smaller than any man alive and thus squeeze in the most copy and still leave room for the art. I was fiercely protective of Joe and mailed my scripts and original art to him personally so that no other letterer could be substituted by an uncaring production manager. Then Dick would be sent the lettered pencils so that he could ink them and add the gray wash that would help give the story its somber mood. From the outset, both Dick and I had in mind that one day, hopefully not too far in the future, the whole adaptation, which I roughly estimated would come out to 200 pages or so, would be reprinted in book form. Not that Marvel was doing anything like that in 1974, but we could dream, couldn't we? And if and when it happened, we wanted the writing, the art, the lettering to all be one of a piece, as seamless as we could make it. To that end, Dick and I came up with a pair of devices that would help the adaptation work, both as a chapter in Dracula Lives and later in a one-volume reprinting. At the end of each chapter, Dick arranged for the space where I'd write next and the name of the following chapter to be in an area that would later otherwise fill in with black. That way, to make that lettering disappear from a collected version, all that was needed was to black in the lettering. That's been done this time around, so it must have been an idea that worked. In addition, 
we didn't want any captions in the actual chapters to have to recap preceding ones because that would be awkward if and when the adaptation was reprinted. So with Marv's blessing, we arranged that starting with chapter two, Dick would do a paste up of a couple of pages of photostats of art from the preceding chapter for which I could write partly new captions. When those drop pages were omitted, the story would flow smoothly from one chapter into another with no summarizing. Those introductions appeared at the start of each Dracula chapter except the first, but of course are omitted here, just as they were intended to be. Things went along reasonably smoothly, although both Dick and I were busy enough that putting together even just 10 to 12 pages for each Dracula Lives became a bit tricksy, as Gollum would say. The adaptation began in issue number five, continued in issues six through eight. The magazine had a reader's poll each issue, and our chapters almost invariably ranked first as voted by letter writers. For some reason, Dick and I had to skip number nine. I have no idea why, but we were back in issue number 10. By this time, I had stepped down as editor-in-chief, but was contractually a writer-editor for Marvel. And in any event, there was never a moment's friction between Marv Wolfman and me over anything to do with the adaptation. I was a teeny bit annoyed that at the end of the chapter in number 10, besides the next issue title, someone also stuck on a Finnish blurb. But I assumed this was just an error. For in our own minds, Dick and I were anything but finished. Issue number 11 contained yet another chapter, but then for some reason, there was none in either number 12 or number 13. And then while we were working on chapter 7, Dracula Lives was abruptly canceled after number 13, cover dated July 1975. However, all was not lost. Marvel had inventory on the shelf and other stories in the works, so a brand new, also bi-monthly title was started. With the title The Legion of Monsters, Neil Adams' cover depicted the Frankenstein's monster, a new creature called Manphibian, and Dracula together in a swamp scene lit by lightning. But it was ever intended that these three would become an actual functioning legion? I never heard about it. All I cared about was that Dick and I had a berth for our ongoing Dracula adaptation, since by now it had been half a year since chapter six. Tony Isabella, both a good friend and new mags editor, asked us to do a five-page pasted-up intro to the new entry, which we duly did. But there we had to leave it with Lucy Westenera still alive but increasingly victimized by Dracula's nocturnal visits while a gentleman from Amsterdam named Van Helsing had recently arrived with theories of his own. For Legion of Monsters, alas, was cancelled after a single issue. And so it seemed that Chapter 8, The Hour of the Wolf, which I had plotted but Dick had not yet drawn, might never appear. Over the years, Dick and I talked many times about finding a way to continue our adaptation. We hoped at one stage to lease the rights from Marvel to publish it elsewhere. And once in the 1990s, we met with some powers that were at Marvel to discuss that very thing. But Marvel announced it wanted to finish the adaptation for them, which was fine by us. And an enthusiastic editor, whose name I have forgotten, swore he was going to make it happen. But it didn't. And then amazingly, unbelievably, earlier this year, Marvel editor Mark Beasley, whom neither Dick or I had ever met, suddenly contacted us out of the blue and invited us to complete 
the adaptation for serialization by Marvel in several issues. Details were quickly worked out, difficulties were overcome, good film of our original nearly 80 pages was mercifully located after first being thought lost, and Dick, Mark, and I set to work. Mark, whose vision jived with Dick's in mind, was determined that even the Joe Rosen lettering would be matched although sadly Joe himself is no longer with us. This time we had a finite length for the adaptation, and we've had to finish it in perhaps a dozen or so fewer pages than if we had done so in the 1970s, but length was always flexible, and telescoping was relatively easy. Now it's for readers to judge whether Dick and I have succeeded in what was always our ambition to draw and script the most faithful adaptation ever done in any medium of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Ah, if only Bela Lugosi were alive or something to star in a film version. Signed, Roy Thomas, 2004. Roy Thomas has been writing comics since 1965 when he went to work for Stan Lee. Among major series he scripted for Marvel are Conan the Barbarian, The Incredible Hulk, The X-Men, The Avengers, Fantastic Four, Daredevil, Submariner, Thor, The Invaders, even Amazing Spider-Man. But few things will ever please him more than finally seeing his and Dick Giordano's adaptation of Dracula completed 30 years after its commencement. And there you have it, folks. That is the very long three-decade story of bringing Dracula to life, finally coming out serialized in 2004, and then finally put together as a single graphic novel here in 2010. And we were so pleased to make this the selection for the comic book character of the month. And indeed, yes, Roy, and yes, Dick Giordano, this is one of the most faithful adaptations of Bram Stoker's classic story in bringing that iconic Halloween horror character to life in the comic book pages. Listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. 